Good afternoon. This is uh, Left Out on WRCT 88.3. My name is Danny Slater, uh, and uh, in this program we discuss news and views left out of the mainstream media. Uh, today Bob Harper is not here. Um, we have a guest uh, named David Hughes from the Citizen Power Organization. We'll be talking to him later in the program. Today we're going to start out with a couple of um, of um, snippets that I've uh, thought would be interesting for our audience uh, from other news sources. Um, first one is going to be a, um, uh, a commentary by Keith Olbermann, who um, is on MSNBC. And this is something he did in response to a speech last week by Donald Rumsfeld. I thought this was a very interesting and, and um, poignant uh, speech there, the commentary he gave about, about Rumsfeld's um, Talk. So I'll go ahead and uh, we'll play that right now and then um, talk about that for a minute and then we'll play another, another snippet. Here we go. Keith Olbermann of MSNBC. A man who sees absolutes where all other men see nuances and shades of meaning is either a prophet or a quack. Donald H. Rumsfeld is not a prophet. We end the countdown where we began, our number one story, with a special comment on Mr. Rumsfeld's remarkable speech to the American Legion yesterday. It demands the deep analysis and the sober contemplation of every American. For it did not merely serve to impugn the morality or intelligence, indeed the loyalty, of the majority of Americans who oppose the transient occupants of the highest offices in the land. Worse still, it credits those same transient occupants, our employees, with a total omniscience a total omniscience which neither common sense nor this administration's track record at home or abroad suggests they deserve. Dissent and disagreement with government is the life's blood of human freedom, and not merely because it is the first roadblock against the kind of tyranny the men Mr. Rumsfeld likes to think of as his troops still fight this very evening in Iraq. It is also essential, because just every once in a while it is right, and the power to which it speaks is wrong. In a small irony, however, Mr. Rumsfeld's speechwriter was adroit in evoking the memory of the appeasement of the Nazis. For in their time, there was another government faced with true peril, with a growing evil, powerful and remorseless. That government, like Mr. Rumsfeld's, had a monopoly on all the facts. It too had the secret information. It alone had the true picture of the threat. It too dismissed and insulted its critics in terms like Mr. Rumsfeld's, questioning their intellect and their morality. That government was England's in the 1930s. It knew Hitler posed no true threat to Europe, let alone to England. It knew Germany was not rearming in violation of all treaties and accords. It knew that the hard evidence it had received, which contradicted its own policies, its own conclusions, its own omniscience, needed to be dismissed. The English government of Neville Chamberlain already knew the truth. Most relevant of all, it knew that its staunchest critics needed to be marginalized and isolated. In fact, it portrayed the foremost of them as a bloodthirsty warmonger who was, if not truly senile, at best morally or intellectually confused. That critic's name was Winston Churchill. Sadly, we have no Winston Churchills evident among us this evening. We have only Donald Rumsfeld's demonizing disagreement the way Neville Chamberlain demonized Winston Churchill. History and 163 million pounds of Luftwaffe bombs over England have taught us that all Mr. Chamberlain had was his certainty and his own confusion, a confusion that suggested that the office can not only make the man, but that the office can also make the facts. 
Thus did Mr. Rumsfeld make an apt historical analogy, accepting the fact that he has the battery plugged in backwards. His government, absolute and exclusive in its knowledge, is not the modern version of the one which stood up to the Nazis. It is the modern version of the government of Neville Chamberlain. But back to today's omniscient ones. That about which Mr. Rumsfeld is confused is simply this. This is a democracy, still, sometimes just barely, and as such, all voices count, not just his. Had he or his president perhaps proven any of their prior claims of omniscience about Osama bin Laden's plans five years ago, about Saddam Hussein's weapons four years ago, about Hurricane Katrina's impact one year ago. We all might be able to swallow hard and accept their omniscience as a bearable, even useful recipe of fact plus ego. But to date, this government has proved little besides its own arrogance and its own hubris. Mr. Rumsfeld is also personally confused, morally or intellectually, about his own standing in this matter. From Iraq to Katrina to flu vaccine shortages to the entire fog of fear which continues to envelop our nation, he, Mr. Bush, Mr. Cheney and their cronies have, inadvertently or intentionally, profited and benefited, both personally and politically. And yet he can stand up in public and question the morality and the intellect of those of us who dare ask just for the receipt for the emperor's new clothes. In what country was Mr. Rumsfeld raised? As a child of whose heroism did he read? On what side of the battle for freedom did he dream one day to fight? With what country has he confused the United States of America? The confusion we as its citizens must now address is stark and forbidding. But variations of it have faced our forefathers when men like Nixon and McCarthy and Curtis LeMay have darkened our skies and obscured our flag. Note with hope in your heart that those earlier Americans always found their way to the light and we can too. The confusion is about whether this Secretary of Defense and this administration are in fact now accomplishing what they claim the terrorists seek the destruction of our freedoms, the very ones for which the same veterans Mr. Rumsfeld addressed yesterday in Salt Lake City so valiantly fought. And about Mr. Rumsfeld's other main assertion that this country faces a new type of fascism, as he was correct to remind us how a government that knew everything could get everything wrong, so too was he right when he said that, though probably not in the way he thought he meant it. This country faces a new type of fascism indeed. Although I presumptuously use his sign-off each night in feeble tribute, I have utterly no claims to the words of the exemplary journalist Edward R. Murrow. But never in the trial of a thousand years of writing could I come close to matching how he phrased a warning to an earlier generation of us, at a time when other politicians thought they, and they alone, knew everything and branded those who disagreed confused or immoral. Thus forgive me for reading Murrow in full. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty, he said in 1954. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. Yes, uh... Hello, that is the uh, the speech that was given by Keith Olbermann. It ended a little bit too soon. I'm not sure what, what happened there. He, there was about two more seconds uh, of that, so we, we almost got the whole thing. Uh, he was just closing it up with uh, Edward R. Murrow's comments. Um, so I thought that was a, a pretty interesting speech given by a 
a mainstream uh, newsman is on a network television on MSNBC. So um, why don't we go ahead with uh, with our guest today um, and start our discussion um, about energy and energy generation and uh, politics thereof. So uh, today we have David Hughes in the studio with us. Um, David is, um, I believe, the founder of Citizen Power, which is an um, energy advocacy organization. Welcome to Left Out, David. Nice to be here. So um, maybe you could just start by just giving us a little, a little uh, uh, a brief summary of uh, your, what your organization does, and then we can get into more details of, of what's happening nowadays. Well, basically, we started out uh, from a history, a volunteer history of fighting against nuclear power. And uh, early on, those were kind of safety concerns. And then through that struggle, we learned a lot about the economics of nuclear power and the economics of energy use. And that kind of uh, dovetailed in the in the mid-1990s into what was called deregulation. So we formed this organization and uh, got some funding from local foundations to deal with uh, deregulation of electricity, which was a uh, Kind of a new idea. Deregulation isn't a new idea. It started back in the 70s, really, uh, with the airline industry. Mm -hmm, right. Um, <clears throat> but uh, deregulation of a vital uh, human need or a vital, you know, good or service like electricity was rather novel. Right. Uh, and so, so since the beginning, electric power has been regulated. Is that right? Well, it wasn't regulated from in the beginning, back in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. When Edison and Tesla were first, you know, yeah. in Westinghouse, they were trying yeah. to set up the... Yeah, and when they set up the, the, the beginnings of the grid in the United States, it wasn't regulated. And, uh, and in fact, there was a sort of a big control of a big part of it by this thing called the Insul Trust back in the 20s um, that eventually collapsed in the in the late 20s and, and around 1930 and led to all kinds of reforms, including the regulation okay, of electricity. So, so originally there was no regulation, and yeah. there were different companies starting out competing and so on, and then they yeah. realized this, this, didn't, this didn't work very well. So yeah, they, because you had these monopolies. Yeah. And then when the one monopoly collapsed, very, very similar to the Enron collapse, uh, this led to all kinds of calls for reforms, which occurred in the Roosevelt administration. What was that company called? Or that, the, uh, the Insul Trust was Insul the, Trust. The, the short name for okay. it. Yeah. And uh, so they they set up this sort of regulatory paradigm where utilities are private companies but because they're dealing in a common good or a public service like electricity, the government had to have some oversight to ensure that that electricity service would be universal and that it would be affordable and those kinds of things. Yeah. So that's how they set up the regulatory system that throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, all the way up to the 90s worked very well. Um, there was uh, some problems in the from the 70s to the 80s with nuclear power in terms of the, not only the safety aspects of it, but the uh, expensive yeah. <laughs> construction so, costs of nuclear plants. So the, the regulation didn't do too good in some places in the country, including Pittsburgh and Philadelphia in this state, when it comes to the cost of nuclear power. But other than that, it's always been a reliable source of energy in this country. It's always been a reasonably priced source of energy. 
So uh, the, the, the regulations um, involve, uh, well, the, well, let's see. For, before we talk about that, there are sort of three parts to the, the process of getting, getting electricity, yeah. right? The, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if your listeners know this stuff because when we have things so, you know, reliable in this country like water or electricity or those kinds of things, we tend to take them for granted. And we don't think about exactly what goes into getting that service to us. And when it's discussed, it's pretty boring. We tend to tune it out. Uh, but then when things get sort of critical, like three years ago on August 14th, when there was a major blackout in, the, in the, this part of the country, yeah, uh, people start to pay a little bit of attention. Or four or five years ago in, in California, when companies were manipulating the market there and suddenly there were all kinds of blackouts and lack of power for people for days and you know and if you owned a company you could have lost a lot of inventory particularly if you had perishable goods like a supermarket yeah so it, because it's been so steady and so reliable we tend to take it for granted and you know don't think it's something very important to think about but people in Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh have to start to realize that What's going on is that they're deregulating the control of the price of electricity generation. And when you start to deregulate a vital service, something that everybody needs, you're, you're talking very, very serious stuff here. I mean, when you deregulate the phone industry, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to have a telephone. And you deregulate the airlines, you don't have to fly. And if cable has a monopoly, you know, you don't have to buy cable. You can live without watching TV. Right. But it's pretty tough to, to live without electricity in this day and age. So they deregulated one part of the production of electricity or the getting electricity to you. You have three parts. You generate it at a plant, then you transmit it over these big high voltage lines, and then you distribute it over the lines that go to the homes and businesses in your in your neighborhood. And they the distribution and transmission are still regulated. Distribution is regulated by the state, PUC, Transmission is regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Generation is going to be uh, open to the marketplace, deregulated. Yes. The price of generation is going to be set by the marketplace. But right now we're in a sort of a transition period to try to develop the marketplace, to develop competition so the customers have choices. So the, for the first time in like 80 years, you can switch your electric company. You can choose your supplier. Can you do that now? Is that possible right now? You said we're moving toward a deregulation. Yeah. There's a transition period. Are we in that period right now? We're in the transition period. It started in 1999. This all started in 99. They passed the law in 96. Governor Ridge signed it in the last day of the session in 96. I mean, it was passed on the last day of the session, yeah. mm -hmm. and he signed it in early December. And that was a deregulation of electricity in the state of Pennsylvania. Right. Generation. Then in 99, it started to go into effect, and we've been in this transition period that was supposed to end a couple years ago, but they keep extending it because competition hasn't actually developed. You know, So if you get rid of the transition period, the utility in your area, here it happens to be Duquesne Light, could charge whatever they want. And you couldn't switch to somebody else, so there wouldn't be any restraint on them to keep the price down. So there's still a monopoly. This is the problem, and this is what citizen power is involved in and fighting all the time because we're very worried what's going to happen down the road in a couple of years. So um, we're talking with David Hughes of Citizen Power, and this is left out on WRCT. If you want to give us a call, 
uh, to ask a question, talk about uh, these issues. Um, number is 412-268-9728. So, um, well, I mean, this is one of those things where you can make a superficial argument um, that says that deregulation is going to be great, right? We're going to have competition. You're going to have multiple different power sources, and you're going to have different um, – you can be able to choose which one you want. Uh, it seems uh, sort of like one of these, you know – a great situation. And in fact, you could also imagine um, from the environmentalist perspective the, an advantage, which would be to say a company is a green power company, a company that produces all of its electricity in renewable fashion. Now, I'm just I'm being the devil's, devil's advocate here, you know, saying well, another aspect that's good. So let's say a green power company comes along and they produce their power um, using windmills or, or, or solar or some other method, geothermal, you know, hydroelectric. And uh, they, but they might charge a little more. Uh, than than the coal fired ones, but hey, there are a lot of people who would be willing to pay that, knowing that their power comes from those uh, the green sources. So um, why isn't that a nice you know direction that things could move in? Well, that is a nice direction that things actually did move in in a, in a little bit of a way. But uh, I, first of all, I should say you don't have to have deregulation necessarily to move in these directions. I mean, the PUC can say to utilities, you really need to. Clean, clean up your act. Yeah. Even when they don't have the actual statutory authority, they can do this. In other words, there's no law that says the PUC regulates air quality or can tell a company you have to build a wind plant versus a coal plant. But when a company comes before the PUC and wants to do something, like raise rates or buy another company, then the PUC has all kinds of authority to say, okay, we'll approve that if you do this, this, and that. If, for example, you have a certain percentage of your power coming from renewable energy. But um, we did have, you know, when deregulation started in Pennsylvania, we did have Green Mountain Energy come in, and they used some cleaner sources of energy. A lot of it was natural gas, unfortunately, but uh, that's a little cleaner than coal. But they, they did use uh, some some renewable, and mm-hmm. they did yeah. – they did, caused some wind power to be constructed in Pennsylvania because they bought the power from those wind plants in Somerset that you see when you go along the turnpike. But they couldn't survive. They had lost money, and they're gone. You know, they left the market last year. Uh, and the reason is you really can't have a marketplace for retail electricity. It, does, it just doesn't work like other products. That's the fundamental problem here. And unfortunately, the people who pushed this in Pennsylvania didn't understand that, you know. Uh, And basically, from what I understand, it started with a phone call from George Bush to Tom Ridge, his buddy, on behalf of Kenny Boylay from Enron, saying, you really got to get on this deregulation bandwagon. But that was before Bush was president. You said that was back in 96, right? Yes, he was governor. Texas. Of Texas, yeah. and yeah. Uh, he made a call to Tom Ridge. They were friends mm-hmm. on behalf of Ken Lay. Uh, my understanding is this actually did occur. And, and, and Ridge saw the idea of uh, deregulation as a potential windfall for his own political ambitions, I think. At so, that time, he was looking for running for national office. So one of the aspects of, um, of, the, deregul- of the regulation, the regulatory system that's been set up, is this notion of... Uh, the, the the plant is is you can you can fund new plants, you can guarantee that the utility gets funding for a new plant from the from the fees that they they're allowed to raise rates to pay for 
Correct. investment in a new plant. So that, that's how the nuclear plants got built, right? They turned out to be very expensive, but and th- thus there was a rate increase which paid them back for all the investment in these plants. That's right. In fact, we're uh, well in Duquesne Light Service territory. We just finished paying off those a couple years ago. We finished paying off the a lot of the costs for the nuclear plants that Duquesne Light was invested in. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was the under the regulated system. There was a sort of coordination between what was needed and what to be built to meet the load or the demand, and that was the good thing. And and a company could say, you know, do a forecast and say, we're going to here's the growth in demand we expect to occur over the next ten years, and here's how many plants we have, here's how old they are, you know, here's how many maybe new ones we're going to have to build, and uh, that was all overseen by the PUC and it was well coordinated. And the company was obligated to build those plants to provide that power because they had this captive customer base. Right. You know, but and under the regulatory system, if a, if a company wanted to build a plant, they had to justify the need for that plant. And they had to justify those costs. They had to be prudent costs. And uh, for the most part, that worked, except for the nuclear debacle, where the PUC pretty much failed in their oversight there. You know, and for example, Duquesne Light had two nuclear plants that were to cost a billion dollars, end up costing ten billion dollars, and that's why our rates were way above the national average for for twenty years. Um, but which, were the two which two nuclear plants? Uh, the Beaver Valley, uh, up in Shippingport, Beaver uh-huh. Valley okay. Unit Two, which is about thirty-five miles north of here, and uh, Perry Unit One, uh, forty-five miles east of Cleveland on Lake Erie. Now. So under the regulatory system, they had to have enough generating capacity to provide for their demand. And so that's why electricity was pretty reliable. And because the customers had to pay for plants that were put into the rates, the company could go out and borrow money because they were had a sure guaranteed return on that investment from rate payers. Right. But that's all gone with deregulation. Nobody has to build plants, and nobody has to provide power. Once... Once this current transition period's over, Duquesne Light, for example, in Pittsburgh doesn't have to provide power to you or me or any or CMU or anybody else. Uh, if they could sell that power somewhere else, anywhere else in the country for a better price, they can do that. But the other problem is that they can sell that power to you at a really high price. You're going to have to pay it. We're all going to have to pay it, right? It's not like a loaf of bread that you can go into the bakery and say, you know, I, I don't need that bread today. I'll yeah. just wait. Yeah. The, the problem with electricity is you can't store it. It's not like in a bakery where stuff could maybe sit on the shelf a day or so or other products that could sit on the shelf the, uh, much longer. Yeah. You can't store electricity. Once you produce it, generate it, you put it out on the lines, it's got to go somewhere. It can't sit on those lines. <clears throat> um, well, what we saw in California was the, the direct manipulation right. of the the – uh, the source of po- of power. Yeah. They would they would they would shut down plants right. uh, for maintenance right. w- whenever they felt like it, and they, right. they were winking at each other, saying, "I think we need to maintain this plant." Wink, wink. Right, right, right. And they would shut it down. Right. I mean, there's, there's, there's phone correct. conversations that have been documented, document right. records, and so on about what these companies were doing right. during peak times in the summertime when they needed a lot of energy in the daytime. Whatever right. they would they shut these things down, right. and then um, yeah, and basic- the price just went through the roof. That's so. That's exactly right. They've had these fake outages, and they actually created congestion points on the transmission lines so that power couldn't get through to where it was needed. 
and uh, they manipulated the market. They abused it, and uh, they made billions of dollars. They basically transferred wealth from the people of California to these companies. Yeah. So, what? So this, you know, this, this, well, the mantra of, of the right wing is the free trade, and, and that, well, free trade is one of them, and also competition and, and deregulation. Yeah. These are all mantras. Yeah. And then they come up with these superficial arguments that that you know. Competition improves things. Greed is good, and, yeah. and they were supposed to buy all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but in this situation, that it's completely inappropriate yeah. uh, type of market for for that sort yeah. of competition. It doesn't, it it doesn't it, make any sense. It really can't work in electricity. I mean, it, first of all, you have a situation here where they're claiming they can create a market and create competition. Yet the utilities still own everything. They still own all the generation, all the transmission, all the distribution. Secondly, to build a plant is incredibly capital intensive. Nobody can even get the money now to, to build a plant. It's, you know, it's billions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, but even if you were able to get power somehow, you wanted to be a competitor, then uh, – you had to, you'd have to pay a lot of money to get that power across the transmission lines and distribution lines to the end-use customer. And then the margin of profit on uh, a kilowatt-hour electricity is so small, you need hundreds of thousands of customers in order to make any money. So you got to do marketing to get all those customers. Green Mountain spent millions of dollars on marketing and only was able to get 60,000 customers mm -hmm. in the state. It's not yeah. enough. That's why they set up the original regulated paradigm in the beginning so that a utility would have hundreds of thousands of customers in order to make sufficient profit on these huge investments in plant. And uh, they, But they were given then a captive customer base as a quid pro quo, and it was a good system. Nobody can really compete now with utility companies and come in here, you know, get power to price, get that power across these lines, market enough customers, and be able to sell that power at a price that's competitive. Yeah. You know, it's like the airline industry. If someone was even able to do that, you know, the local utility would drop their prices until they went out of business and then raise them back up. But now we have a situation where we're heading towards, in 2008, we're heading towards the full deregulation or the full competitive market, supposedly. Mm -hmm. In 2008. Yeah, the transition period is going to be over. So we're, we're imitating California's great success in the state of Pennsylvania. Very, very similar. Actually, we just brought in, in June, Citizen Power brought in one of the commissioners from the California Public Utility Commission to talk to the Pennsylvania Commission because he went through that debacle yeah. and say, you're heading in the same way. You know, this is going to happen here if you don't, yeah. you know, take certain measures. Basically, you need to re-regulate. That was his message. You need to go back to regulation because that's the, the most effective way mm -hmm. to prevent price gouging. So it, it, it just se doesn't seem that it seems like such a strange thing to say to, to need we need this market. It just seems like a big fat gift to well, the to the to the to the corporate, yeah. uh, you know. Well, the only people that are saying we need this are the people who want to make money. Electricity is the biggest business in America. It's bigger than bigger the, than Walmart. Bigger than it's bigger than the computer industry. It's bigger than the automobile and trucking industry. It's the biggest business in the country. Sometimes it drops to number two for a while. It goes back up to number one. I mean, it's huge, and people like Ken Lay saw the opportunity here with 
different things being deregulated to say, gee, we want to get into this electricity business. There's huge money to be made here. So those are the people that push deregulation, not the public. The public never demanded it. But then when they got some politicians on board, and those politicians really didn't understand the industry, but they would go around and tell the public, hey, this is going to be great. You're going to be able to choose your supplier. Your rates are going to go down, you know, because yeah. because competition is good and it does work in certain circumstances, particularly at the local level and small businesses. You know, you walk around a business district and you can pick and choose where you shop and, you know, right. that helps. But sure. it, and it does work in, in larger industries, but it doesn't work with electricity, you know. For a lot of reasons, I mentioned you can't store it. It costs too much to build a plant. Uh, right. You know, you you can't get investors to give you money to build a plant for six billion dollars if you're not sure you can sell that electricity. Also, but what also what is the innovation? See, often often in competition, you 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 think about innovation, like in car companies. Say that a car company will produce a car that has a certain new feature that other companies don't have for a few years. Um, and that innovation drives, and therefore they sell more of those cars, and that drives the technology and improves the uh, improves the whole improves the welfare of everybody because this right. innovation occurs. But is there really that kind of innovation possible? I mean, if you're burning coal, you're yeah. burning coal. I mean, well, I mean, there is innovation in the in the energy. For, well, the innovation is isn't it in the side of things like reducing the the damage done, like the pollution produced, or or, right. or that's where the innovation technology is in produced. And the only reason they do that is because it's, they're regulated. Right. Otherwise, they just spew the yeah, whatever sure. crap that they, they wanted sure. to into the, into out the smokestack. Yeah, that's the, one of the frustrating things when you don't see an oppositional voice when you hear leaders for the last 20 years talking about, you know, regulation is so bad. Regulation is bad for business. You really don't hear the oppositional right. voice out there saying what regulation has really done for us. Yeah. You know, in every field, not only energy, but in health, and you just about name the field. Um, but, you know, the, the problem, especially in this part of the country, is that you have these mature technologies like coal and nuclear that kind of frankly, control big segments of our legislature. And that has always made it hard in Pennsylvania and Ohio and these, these states, these coal king states, mm -hmm. to get new technologies, you know, support for R&D uh, so that these technologies can actually get into the market and get used so that the more they're used, the more the price comes down. But that's starting to happen because, the, you know, People were wise to the problems with uh, coal and nuclear, I think. Let me just say something about nuclear power, by the way. That's being put forth now as the answer to global right. warming. Well, it's, it's the answer to global warming. We've got to go nuclear. And uh, there's a lot of reasons why it isn't the answer to global warming. Uh, for one thing, you know, the nuclear industry always says that uh, nuclear power doesn't create greenhouse gases. And the fact is that Greenhouse gases don't come out of a nuclear plant. Um, but some of the deadliest gases known to exist do come out of nuclear plants. But the process to make commercial-grade uranium does create greenhouse gases. You know, they don't dig up these little Perfect fuel little, pellets, yeah. you know, uh, in commercial-grade form. There's a whole process of mining and smelting and what have you that creates greenhouse gases. But you don't really want to try to solve the global climate change problem by building plants that are not only extremely expensive, but are very dangerous. And everybody talks about the danger of storing the waste, 
But no one talks about the fact that these plants routinely vent these deadly gases on a daily basis that some studies are showing are, you know, have adverse health consequences. So I think, you know, it's important not to fall for that that argument that nuclear power is the clean source of energy that George Bush says it is. It's not true. Mm -hmm. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. You can't see it. But it's very deadly in terms of emissions, not only in the air, but into the coolant source, into the water. Uh-huh. You know, for example, the, you know, the, I mean, the fact they're cooling the reactor using, right. using water, which is absorbing radiation. And, uh, right. Even yeah. though it's in a separate loop, you know, a separate yeah. loop, it does get radioactive and it does and it does get put back into the water source, into the river or the lake. And, of course, the government says it's at acceptable levels and safe levels. But, you know, yeah. there, are, there are a lot of studies that claim that that's not true. Uh, so I just want to mention that. I think that's very important. You don't hear that oppositional view about nuclear power too often these days. Um, but, you know, there is a, a lot of innovation in in terms of wind, solar, and those kinds of things. It's coming on. It's getting cheaper. It's becoming competitive. And it needs support from governments and from the public, just like nuclear power and coal gets 10 times the support right. as these, you know, in terms of R&D money and from the government. Um but, you know, these things are coming on. Citizen power is really pushing for renewable energy. And, 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 and the best way to deal with pollution and to deal with, you know, energy use and to reduce demand is conservation or what we call energy efficiency, whether it's energy efficient lighting or energy efficient appliances. You know, this yeah. is something every American can do. Right. Every American. And, it would you know, you could eliminate the need for almost all the nuclear plants. In this country, if every American was en used energy-efficient appliances in their home. We're talking to David Hughes uh, of Citizen Power about uh, the issues involving uh, power generation. Um, you can give us a call at 268-9728. Um, so, uh, yeah, you mentioned you, that's a very interesting topic, the whole, interest, uh, the whole issue of, of conservation. Now, there was um, another issue of regulation that came out. Uh, if you look at your, uh, your computer, there's a thing called Energy Star, which apparently is a standard. I don't know much about it except that I see it on my computer monitor. Um, it's a standard that uh, I don't know if it was required uh, by law or if it was just recommended um, for redu reducing the energy consumption of these appliances. So, for example, on a, a CRT monitor, Energy Star meant it would automatically turn itself off if uh, it wasn't being used, if the screen didn't change for a minute or two, it would turn itself off. Um, that's an example of a something, a, you know, a good innovation. That's right. an old thing, but, but it's the kind of thing that that it's important. I mean, uh, in lighting, it's a, the fact that I mean, we ought to be using technology. For example, a light that knows, a room that knows, there's nobody in the room, right. so it can turn the lights <clears> off. <throat> Um, that would I mean people leave their lights on all the time it's yeah. just it's, it's hard to turn every light off every you walk around your house flipping lights on on and off as you go in and out of every single room that's a big hassle if, and you, and and people are using the old incandescent bulbs which are incredibly wasteful right yeah you go to other countries you know and the, and it's all automatic you go into a building and the lights come on and you go up to whatever floor you're going to and then they shut off automatically I mean there's a lot more sensitivity to conservation and energy efficiency in other countries than there is here. We've had so much energy, and, and it's been so cheap, there hasn't been any incentive to be conservative or to be efficient in using it. And uh, that's starting to change a little bit now, especially with gasoline prices going up. People are a little bit more conscious. Um, 
but <clears throat> there needs to be leadership. You know, you need to have spokespeople who educate the American people about why this is important. Because if people knew that energy costs affect everything in their life, for example, the students here at CMU, their tuition is affected by the cost of energy. Obvi and it seems obvious, but no one thinks yeah, about right. no one thinks about that. <clears throat> and there's so many ways that we could save a lot of energy and not only lower the price of energy, but lower our dependence on foreign oil, that big mantra that you hear all the time. Right. You hear these people like George Bush talking about we're addicted to foreign oil and we've got to do things to get off of that addiction. But they're not doing anything about that because their base is the oil and gas industry. And these industries, these mature industries, especially coal, these utility companies, they don't want you to conserve. They don't make money by you conserving. Yeah, they make right. money by you consuming. Right. So they're right. doing so two they're, things. They're they're trying to, <clears throat> so they're trying to isolate. You, you, you are in sort of a <clears throat> vacuum about what happens when you turn that light switch on. People don't know. They don't connect together the massive environmental damage that goes on every time. Right. Well, one light switch isn't going to cause massive damage, right. but the accumulated effect right, sure. of the pollution, the CO2 pollution, right. the, the mercury, all the other crap that comes out of the, the, the smokestacks, right. not to mention in coal, the mining, the extraction right. process is horrendous. We've talked about right. that here on this program with the, the long wall mining that goes on in southwestern Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. which has immense damage to the water table, mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, the, in West Virginia with the, the, the mountaintop mining, which is just horrendous. Yeah. Well, people can go to our website and, <clears throat> excuse me, learn more about this. It's www.citizenpower.com. I encourage people to go see Al Gore's movie, uh, An Inconvenient Truth. I, I didn't, I'm not a supporter of Al Gore's. I didn't vote for Al Gore, but I think that his movie is, should be seen by every American. I think he's right on target in terms of global warming and its potential impact. We just have to be more sensitive about energy use, uh, and it's hard because people are not used to thinking about it. You know, it's always been there. It's and and of course, a lot of younger people didn't pay for their electricity. You know, their parents paid for it. They probably never even saw an electricity bill in their house. Yeah. <clears throat> but as people get into their twenties, they start to have to. You know, even if they get an apartment in college, they got to start paying electric electric bills. You know. And even students here at CMU in the next couple of years may, if they're paying their own electric bill, may start to see prices creep up. In fact, they are going to creep up. Uh, there's going to be a rate increase coming starting in uh, January or February for uh, Duquesne Lights customers. And there's going to be a series of them probably over the next four years. So when, what we pay for now in our electric bill, I mean, it's something like $0.10 cents a kilowatt hour or something? Is that? Yeah, it's. I think it's 11 point something uh does, 10 6 or 11.1 does that money pay for everything not forgetting the cost of environmental pollution and things like that that pays for that, the utility the generation transmission maintenance all the all the costs for and the profit, electricity and profit. and profit yeah they get a you know pretty good return on their investment but rates are going to go up yeah why <laughs> Well, the, for example, the distribution rate or the generation rate went up last year 7%. Uh, the distribution rate is going to go up in the beginning of next year because Duquesne Light really, in all fairness, hasn't had a distribution rate increase in almost 20 years, about 18 or 19 years. 
And we just got done monitoring or actually negotiating in a rate case. We, we, we negotiated that rate increase down a little bit. But uh, the company hasn't had a rate increase for distribution costs, and they're planning a big, big $500 million capital improvement. We've their, seen the ads, uh, billboards <laughs> yeah, around right. saying they're redoing Oakland and all that with yeah. electrical wiring. Yeah. yeah, to their distribution system. They're up for sale, by the way. An Australian company is... Uh, They've applied to the PUC for um, to be able to sell Duquesne Light to an Australian company. And, of course, Duquesne Light's, all their generating plants were sold three or four years ago to uh, another utility. They're owned right now, by by the way, uh, by Reliant Energy out of Houston, Texas. Reliant, of course, was one of the companies <clears throat> accused of uh, market manipulation in California during that crisis yeah. four and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, but um, in this recent case that we just negotiated with Duquesne Light, uh, there, there are some things good for the environment that we got out of it. Um, we're a small organization. You know, we do the best we can, and uh, but we have a good legal team, and we, we put forth good legal papers and make good arguments. Um, so we do get some success, and you can see that on our website at citizenpower.com. But it's a big struggle because you have big, powerful interests in the energy field, uh, especially in this part of the country with the coal industry. Mm -hmm. um, and they're real resistant to change. They're real threatened by these new technologies. So, you know, um, because wind, you know, wind, no one has to sell that fuel. There's no yeah. – that fuel's free, you know. What is the, what is the cost of wind if you, if you were to – with current – let's, you know, mass-producing the high-quality wind turbines that are now being – now available – um, can you come up with a – is there an estimate of the cost per kilowatt hour that you would pay? Or I guess it might depend on what region you're in, how much wind is blowing there. and, and uh... Yeah, well, wind is a, a variable source. You can't just have wind. You have to have wind along with right, others. Right, right, it's too it's unreliable. Yeah. yeah. It depends on where you are. There are estimates, for example, that there's enough wind resource in the middle of this country, in the Dakotas, to meet the demand of the whole country. You know, and when I was a young kid, you know, Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon in 10 years. And there was this huge investment and they did it. Uh, and if we had a leader in this country that said, you know, we're going to be we're going to make this country energy efficient or we're going to have just renewable energy. You know, you're going George up against Bush said we're going to go to Mars. Yeah. Didn't he say that a few years ago? Yeah, he was. And they're building Star Wars to shoot down uh, incoming missiles, too. That, that's that's the uh, big vision that yeah. they have. There's a lot of waste of money. I mean, Star Wars have won. Of course, the Iraq War is $253 million every day. There's, you know, we could be energy independent completely. We could have renewable energy, I believe, yeah. supplying the energy demands of this country. Uh, I think the technology is there now. Um, but the will is not there. Be and the and the will is not there because the old story about money and politics, but so the public has to demand it. So what people can do is in their own life become more energy efficient, more conscious, more educated about it. And then secondly, educate their elected officials starting at the local level, you know, yeah. and, and demand that their school system teach their kids about energy use. Mm -hmm. That's really important. Yeah. So what can we do? Just uh, what, what what's the best thing? To, to, to make my house more energy efficient? Just can you run down a few of the most obvious uh, well, the things first, to do? Well, the first, I mean, you know, it depends on how much money you can afford. 
to do that. But the first thing you really should do is every time a light bulb goes bad, an incandescent light bulb, replace it with a fluorescent, compact fluorescent. Right. And just do that to your whole house's compact fluorescent. Try to, uh, when you decide to purchase a vehicle, try to purchase a vehicle that has good gas mileage. You know, um, try to be conscious of how that impacts the whole world when you... You know, when I see someone driving a Hummer, I just feel like stopping them and saying, "Do you have any idea what that does? The <laughs> footprint that that makes, yeah." yeah. But what about uh, what about the devices? I mean, my house has got I've got a you know a, a satellite box, a TiVo uh, box for my TV. I got a mm -hmm. TV set. Well, that, hopefully that's well, that's not completely turned off when I switch it off because yeah, it, has, it has to look for the uh, the remote control right. signal. They're all still on. They're so using energy. Hopefully, they're using I mean, wattage. Is there, but we don't know. How, I mean, I, I, I actually I have a meter, a watt meter that I can use to plug in things through my watt meter to measure how much power they're using. And I haven't checked out those devices yet. But yeah, um, it's kind of a shame if they're using more than a, like one watt of power. Yeah, I'm it, not even. You know, it doesn't seem like much, but over time it is. And uh, the utility used to. I don't know if Duquesne Light still does that, but you used to be able to tell them what you have, and they could tell you what you're using in terms what of wattage. What about like a refrigerator? I mean, the, well, that's the big ticket item in a house. And, you know, that's important to make sure that the refrigerator is efficient, that it's not old and wasting a lot of electricity. So it can, because it can wear out, and you don't even know yeah. that it's not working anymore. It's just sucking up. Yeah, and you can actually way too much power. Yeah, you could probably over a few years, seven years, save money by buying a, a more efficient refrigerator. Somebody suggested you know? that uh, what happens to the old refrigerators is that they get replaced, and then they take the old one and put it in the basement as a backup and plug it in. Uh -huh. So you're not gaining anything in terms of. Um, <laughs> Some people or you do put that, it in the garage or something. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I think just generally people have to be conscious because this is these sources that we're using, particularly here, coal. Even though there are different estimates of how long it's going to last, from 50 to 400 years, uh, it's not going to last forever. And, and we have to try to think of our kids and their kids and future generations. You know, it's, it's not that easy. You know, you, we're so living in the moment and now-oriented. Yeah, but, right. Uh, Something, we're I mean, all in this together, you know. You, we're all going to suffer. We are suffering as a result of our energy policies. I mean... There's a direct connection between energy policies and terrorism, for example. You know, and the terrorist acts, of course, not all because of energy. There's other issues involved, ideology and religion and those kinds the involved, of things. You mean the U.S. involvement in Saudi Arabia was the original trigger for bin Laden? Is that what you mean? Or, or, or? Yeah, well, the, because of our, yeah, our having troops. According, Saudi, according Arabia's, to, Saudi Arabia is basically a client state of the U.S. Yeah. But that whole Mideast situation is very directly connected to energy use. Everybody, I think, knows that. Yeah. A lot of people think we went into Iraq for oil. Whatever the reason is, it's energy-related. And it would be just a beautiful dream, and it's not an impossible dream. It can be done. If, if our country was completely provided energy-sourced yeah. by renewable energy products like wind and solar, it can be done. It's here and now. Yeah. It's just a matter of the American people demanding it. Well, there was a, you know, a, there were these points in time at which the U.S. sort of took the initiative. I mean, after, I mean, wasn't it after Sputnik in the 50s that where the Russians put up this first satellite that the U.S. Right. space program was born? And they they, right. they, they just took off, put a man into space, and, and then eventually went to the moon. Yeah, well, that whole um, moon thing came from that Sputnik yeah. reaction to the Sputnik, yeah. But this seemed like this ought to be, we ought to, it ought to be obvious enough now that the energy issue is 
crucial. Right. Looking at the global warming, looking at the political issues involved. Right. This is this is the time to. Um, this to is take the this time to do it. But the difficulty is, for example, the last energy bill that was passed. If you look at that bill, sections of it were written by people from the, you know, the coal and the oil and the gas business. That's the problem. I mean, they let these lobbyists in there, and they actually not only lobby a member of the legislature or the Congress, they actually write the legislation now. Yeah, uh, right. So the only hope is the American people. That's the only hope. If they don't demand it, it's never going to happen. It's never going to change. So uh, we've been talking to David Hughes of uh, Citizen Power. You can find more about his organization at uh, www.citizenpower.com. Um, I have a um, – there's about six more minutes left in our program. I have a brief um, little uh, thing I wanted to play. Um, if my producer is, uh, is ready, um, I'm not sure he is, uh, to uh, play this uh, – this uh, this little snippet that I have to finish up the program. This is a, um, uh, a, a commentary by Rachel Maddow, who's on Air America Radio. She's a New York commentator, um, and I thought this was a pretty nice uh, response to the recent um, uh, th- terror threat uh, that was um, uncovered in in, in London um, about the, the binary explosives that were um, that we're worried about. So here's the um, here's what she said about what Bush was doing about that. We live in a dangerous world, Hmm. but our government will do everything we can to protect our people from those dangers. How about the political tactic of stoking fear in a specific, impractical, BS, vague, unaccountable way that's only designed to stoke your own image as a daddy figure who can inexplicably keep us safe? It is a mistake to believe there is no threat to the United States of America. How about making a straw man argument about the other side in the debate? Who actually believes that there's no threat to the United States of America? Is there anybody left in the country who actually thinks that, or is that just a really convenient way to characterize the other side of an argument you're not willing to have in honest terms? This country is safer than it uh, was prior to 9-11. We've taken a lot of measures to protect the American people. How about lying as a political tactic? I want to talk about the terror attacks that were unveiled yesterday, that we learned about with those arrests in Britain, in practical terms. There's a couple different ways to talk about something scary in the world. You can talk about how afraid you fear, how afraid you feel, and how angry you are at the people who have made you feel afraid. You can also talk about how to protect yourself, about actual safety. What exactly has the Bush administration done since 9-11 to keep Americans safe in a world that hates us more than ever? Have they done anything to keep the liquid explosives off planes that they knew al-Qaeda was plotting to use against us for the last, I don't know, 12 years? Not before yesterday, they didn't. How about taking steps to regulate the chemicals that can make liquid explosives? don't necessarily need to regulate acetone, which is one of the two ingredients they expected to be used in these liquid explosives yesterday. But the other ingredient, concentrated hydrogen peroxide, you can only get that from chemical supply warehouses. Why not regulate that or at least make people show some ID when they buy it? That ever occurred to anybody since they've known about that threat for 12 years? How about regulating safety of chemical plants that could be the target of attacks? How about securing container ships? How about screening cargo? 
How about just using radiation detectors on all the cargo that comes in? They do that at some other ports in the world. We don't do that in the United States. How about screening cargo on commercial airplanes at all? How about actively patrolling the ports like they do in a lot of countries, but we don't do here? How about locking up loose nuclear material around the world, which we've done less of since 9-11 than we did before 9-11? How about catching Osama bin Laden or Mullah Muhammad Omar or Ayman Zawahri and putting them to work on some popsicle stick art in a prison cell somewhere? How about we work on that? How about we do that instead of disbanding the CIA's bin Laden office? How about we do that instead of diverting the troops from Afghanistan who were looking for those guys and sending them to go fight a get-rich-quick get scheme in Iraq instead? How about doing anything in the world to harden ourselves as a target against terrorists? How about building up our military readiness instead of destroying it? How about making our National Guard troops that attend to the states from which they are brought up? How about letting our National Guard troops actually work on readiness, homeland security, and infrastructure issues in their states instead of sending them all to Iraq? How about doing something other than Karen Hughes' Muslim land speaking tour to try to do something about the fact that a worldwide army of young Muslim men is radicalized against us and willing to die trying to hurt us now more than ever? How about recognizing that nothing that has been done since 9-11 in this country has made us more safe as Americans? And everything that has been done in foreign policy by this Bush administration since 9-11 has made the world a more dangerous place for the citizens of this country. That significant terror attacks around the globe have dramatically risen since 9-11. That the name Osama is increasingly popular for Muslim newborn boys around the world. That bin Ladenism and the threat that it poses has been made worse while we've decided to substitute sending F-16s over unrelated countries, decided to substitute that for any substantive effort to make Americans actually be any safer. How about the American people no longer being willing to settle for fear? This threat is not going away. No matter what George Bush says about people who disagree with him about keeping Americans safe, nobody in this country thinks we are not at threat. This threat is not going away. And impotent fear and this get-rich-quick scheme gone bad that is the war in Iraq are not going to make us safe. It's time to kick this government out of office and actually start working toward reducing the threat to Americans posed by militant Islamic terrorism, toward actually making ourselves more safe. Who will make that possible? If the Democratic Party can't step up and do it, the people are going to have to do something because this government that we've got right now cannot do it. They've shown us that for five years. That was uh, Rachel Maddow, um, who has an Air America program, and that uh, ends our program uh, today. Um, and I want to thank David Hughes for being here, and I'll uh, see you guys again, and also Matt Horniak for producing our program. Uh, see you again in two weeks.